0: Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamal, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University
1: School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Demania from Cleveland Clinic Children's, and we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things med ed in the PICU. PQ Doc on Call focuses on interesting PICU cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So let's get into our episode.
0: Here's the case of a 12-week-old girl who is seizing and is limp, presented to us by Rahul.
1: A 12-week-old, previously healthy female, infant, was found limp in her crib and developed generalized tonic-clonic seizures on the way to the hospital. Just as a background, the mother returned from work on a Saturday to find her daughter unresponsive in her crib. The infant had been left in the care of her mother's boyfriend, who stated that the daughter had been sleeping all day and just had a few spit-ups. As the patient continued to have low appetite throughout the day and continued to be unresponsive in her crib, mother called EMS to bring her to the emergency department. While en route, the patient had tonic movement that did not resolve with intranasal benzodiazepines. The infant now presented to the ED being masked and Upon arrival at the ED, the infant was in respiratory distress, her vital signs showing a heart rate of 190, respiratory rate of 50 breaths per minute, and an oxygen saturation of 85% despite the bagging. She was intubated for seizure control upon arrival at the ED. Her physical exam in the emergency department revealed bruising on the right neck region and otherwise was unremarkable. A non-contrast head CT showed no acute intracranial abnormalities. The initial diagnostic workup revealed normal CBC, mildly elevated hepatic enzymes, and pancreatic enzymes, which were within normal limits. The blood gas showed metabolic acidemia, as well as a PCO2 in the 60s. She was admitted to the PICU, and upon admission to the PICU, neurosurgery and trauma teams were consulted. A skeletal survey and ophthalmology consult for a fundoscopic exam was ordered. And further investigation is now underway to determine the cause of the infant's condition. Rahul,
0: to summarize key
1: elements from this case,
0: number one, patient was left with mother's boyfriend. Patient was found limp and then had seizures requiring intubation, has a neck bruise, all of which bring up the concern for non-accidental trauma, which is the topic of our discussion for
1: today. Awesome, Pradeep. So let's go ahead and start with a multiple-choice question. Which imaging modality is the most appropriate for establishing a diagnosis of abusive head trauma in a 12-week-old infant with an open fontanelan exam? Is it A, CT scan without contrast, B, MRI of the brain without contrast, C, a skull x-ray, or D, Doppler ultrasound of the head? Rahul, the correct answer is
0: A. Though ultrasound may be less invasive, the penumbra effect in cranial ultrasound makes it hard to visualize the parts of the brain located just under the convexity of the skull, such as a subdural hematoma. Regardless of the small radiation risk, non-contrasted head CT is the method of first choice in imaging traumatic brain injury for both fractures and intracranial pathology. CT scan has short scan time and is widely available. Non-contrast enhanced CT has high sensitivity for detecting acute hemorrhages and midline
1: shift. Thanks, Pradeep, for that detailed explanation. And I agree that CT scan is a valuable diagnostic tool that provides detailed reconstitution images as well. And this helps us understand the mechanism of some of the skull fractures that we see. So Pradeep, let's transition and talk about one of the other answer choices, which was MRI. Do you mind telling us a little bit about the role of MRI in the diagnosis of abusive head trauma? Sure. MRI has lower
0: sensitivity for acute hemorrhage compared to CT scan and takes longer to acquire images and sometimes may even require anesthesia to provide immobility to acquire those images. However, a systematic review by Camp and colleagues that was published in Clinical Radiology in 2009 reported that MRI performed following an abnormal CT scan in children with abusive head trauma revealed new information in at least 25% of the cases. This new information included cranial shearing, ischemia, infarction, parenchymal hemorrhages, and cerebellar contusions. It is important to note that the role of MRI in cases where the initial CT scan is normal is unclear. Additionally, MRI is more accurate in evaluating time points in certain lesions, making it a valuable tool in diagnosis and management of abusive head trauma in pediatrics.
1: So in summary, Pradeep, you know, CT scan is the preferred imaging modality for assessing traumatic brain injury in cases of suspected abusive head trauma. While cranial ultrasonography may be useful in some cases, it's important to understand its limitations. Also, it's important to remember that interpretation of imaging in cases of abusive head trauma requires complete clinical information, and that's going to be the focus of our episode as we move forward. All right, Pradeep, so very interesting that our initial CT scan did not show any signs of bleeding. And, you know, once the patient was more stable in the PICU, uh, we ordered a skeletal survey. So do you mind just elaborating on what did the skeletal survey show in this patient? Yeah, the
0: skeletal survey showed multiple fractures of varying ages, including multiple rib fractures and an unhealed clavicular fracture. The team closely monitored the infant's condition and initiated treatment as necessary. So Rahul, can you give us a brief
1: introduction to non-accidental trauma in the pediatric ICU? Absolutely. So just as a background, child abuse, also known as battered child syndrome, can take multiple forms such as physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, psychological maltreatment, and even medical neglect. This is such a sensitive and complex topic. And today we'll just focus on physical abuse. And particularly I want to focus on what us as intensivists may encounter in our practice. Now, In the pediatric ICU, the team is more likely to see cases of abusive head trauma, abdominal trauma, burns, complex fractures, rib fractures. And all of these may actually be identified, especially the rib fractures, when you get a simple radiograph after the patient is stabilized. And remember that especially abusive head trauma or abdominal trauma, these are serious and often life-threatening conditions, and it requires a multidisciplinary team approach, and specialized care. So just to summarize here, you know, physical abuse in children, particularly infants, can present with nonspecific signs and symptoms. This includes vomiting and apnea. You know, this case really highlights the importance of considering the possibility of abusive head trauma in the context of a social situation, as well as in our patient who had decreased PO intake and was persistently lethargic.
0: That's a great summary, Rahul. It's also crucial for intensivists to keep in mind that if the infant doesn't cruise, they should not bruise. Now, please also remember that the term abusive head trauma has replaced shaken baby syndrome. Now, and this is a serious and life-threatening condition that requires prompt recognition and intervention. Therefore, it's essential for us as intensivists to be familiar with the various forms of physical abuse, including abusive head trauma and work closely with other
1: specialists to ensure that the patient receives the best possible care that brings up a really great point pradeep and let's go ahead and dive deep into abusive head trauma do you mind talking about the spectrum of symptoms we can see yeah i think
0: abusive head trauma is the most common presentation of child abuse in the pediatric icu as senior in our case at presentation infants may present with apnea altered mental status loss of consciousness Limpness, vomiting, seizure, poor feeding, or subtle signs like swelling in the scalp. In one third of abusive head trauma cases, the infant was actually seen by another physician in the preceding two to three weeks. The diagnosis of abusive head trauma requires a high level of suspicion, especially in infants with fractures, ecchymoses, and failure to gain weight. Abusive head trauma is the leading cause of fatal injuries in children.
1: That's a really important point. And, you know, abusive head trauma is actually responsible for about 53% of all severe TBI cases in infants. Pradeep, let's go ahead and pivot into the pathophysiology. Do you mind shedding light on the pathophysiology of injury when it comes to abusive head trauma?
0: Now, the pathophysiology of abusive head trauma in infants is very complex and multifactorial. Now, the skull of a neonate, as we know, is soft and malleable, which allows forces applied to the skull to propagate directly to the brain tissue. Additionally, the high water content and lack of myelination make the brain more susceptible to shearing forces which occur with shaking. Now, infants also have a larger head in proportion to their body, constituting about 15 to 20 percent of the total body weight, as opposed to 2 to 3 percent in adults. Now, so Rahul, we have discussed how the pathophysiology of abusive head trauma in infants is complex and multifactorial. Can you tell us more about how the soft and malleable
1: skull of a neonate plays a role in this type of injury? Absolutely. And this requires a little bit of understanding of physics as well. So, you know, a heavier head with a lack of nuchal muscular strength in the infant predisposes the head to sustain severe injury. As opposed to an older child. Now, further, there is a lack of coordination of the head and body motion, and the infant is unable to regulate or protect themselves in this situation. Injuries and abusive head trauma can be due to blunt impact, the shaking with the blunt impact, or just shaking alone. Whiplash shaking and jerking the infant and the brain to rotational accelerations and deceleration forces explains brain injuries and even retinal hemorrhages in the absence of any external trauma. So it is that force that is transmitted internally, which is very key in abusive head trauma related to NAT. The resulting traumatic brain injuries can have devastating and long-lasting effects on the child's cognition as well as overall development.
0: So, Rahul, uh, how should an intensivist assess a child with physical abuse in the
1: PICU? Absolutely. That's a great question. And I want to emphasize something you told me throughout fellowship, that pediatric ICU is a team sport. And so it's important to consult with multiple teams early on in cases of suspected abusive head trauma. Now, this includes the trauma neurosurgery teams. You want to call your radiologist child advocacy services, even your social workers, you want to get them involved very early on. And, you know, in some states, early referral to child protective services or law enforcement is mandatory to actually protect other siblings from harm. Now, by involving all of these specialized teams and agencies, we as a team can ensure that there's a comprehensive approach to the diagnosis and management of non-accidental trauma.
0: Absolutely, Rahul. The first step in diagnosing abusive head trauma is to obtain a detailed history from the parents or caregivers. It's important to determine if the child was brought to medical attention or neglected after the traumatic event. Additionally, we need to assess whether the child's development level is consistent with the proposed mechanism of injury and whether the alleged events account for all injuries. So, Rahul, what are some of the key historical features that can help diagnose the child abuse? in cases of suspected abusive head trauma.
1: Absolutely, Pradeep. So with that background, I do want to highlight a study, and this was a retrospective study of about 160 children, and 30% of whom met criteria for physical abuse. Certain historical features had a really high specificity and positive predictive value for diagnosing child abuse. Very interestingly, in this study, having no history, Of trauma had a specificity of 0.97 and a positive predictive value of 0.92 for abuse. Among the subgroup of patients with persistent neurological abnormality at hospital discharge, having a history of quote, no or even low impact trauma had a specificity and positive predictive value of one for abuse. So, in summary, a detailed history is crucial in diagnosing abusive head trauma, as certain negative historical features, such as no history of trauma and low-impact trauma, have high specificity and positive predictive value for diagnosing child abuse when the clinical suspicion is high.
0: Certainly. In our case, the mother's boyfriend claimed that the baby fell from the crib onto the hardwood floor. However, falls from less than five feet, unlikely to cause moderate or large subdural hematomas in children and are rarely fatal. It is important to note that scalp contusions or lacerations are common in such falls, while a skull fracture, though rare, is typically linear and located in the parietal region without associated intracranial hemorrhage. So Rahul, in our case, the patient had mild transaminitis. Can you comment on abusive abdominal trauma? Absolutely.
1: So let's go ahead and kind of shift from the head to the abdomen. Now, certainly abdominal trauma in the PICU is an important topic to discuss. In our case, the patient had a mild transaminitis, which kind of leads us to question the possibility of abusive abdominal trauma. Now, it's important to note that abusive abdominal trauma is actually the most common cause of abdominal injuries in children under the age of two. The outcome For patients with abusive abdominal trauma is also worse than those with accidental trauma, with a mortality ranging up to 30%, as opposed to, say, they got in a bike accident, etc., the mortality is about 5%. So, the symptoms are going to be relatively nonspecific. They can include things like vomiting or a whole presentation of suspected gastroenteritis, and this may even delay the diagnosis. You know, the most common injuries in abusive abdominal trauma involve the liver, kidney, and spleen, with the liver just being a little bit more common than the spleen. It also can involve the stomach and the intestines, but that is a little less likely. So if a child presents with pancreatitis after a reported fall, you should really have a high index of suspicion for abusive abdominal trauma. And this is, again, where history is going to play an important role.
0: So Rahul, let's keep building on this diagnostic framework. Besides
1: history, what else would you emphasize? Certainly. So, you know, in addition to obtaining a thorough history, the next step is going to get a comprehensive physical exam. Now, it's essential to document any skin findings, oral lesions, eye findings, as well as to take photographs and place them in the EPIC or EMR chart with the appropriate date and time and Remember, even checking the back and turning the patient, it's very important for you to get the comprehensive physical exam. The next step is to really make sure the patient is stable to go down for imaging. And this patient got a CT scan in the ER, but CT is going to be very helpful in the acute phase to determine the need for even neurosurgical intervention. MRI Later on, may be used to evaluate things like diffuse axonal injury, ischemia, cranial shearing, infarction, etc. But in that acute phase, CT is going to be your go-to. Now, a skeletal survey should be obtained to assess for fractures. And if abdominal injuries are suspected, you may want to couple your head CT with the CT of the abdomen, and uh, that can be done at the same time. Now, additionally, CBC and CMP coag studies and pancreatic enzymes should be ordered or even trended. Now, an ophthalmology consult for retinal hemorrhages is crucial, as they cannot be specifically dated and may even clear quickly. So early examination is important, and you may just want to coordinate with your neurosurgeons as to when would be the optimal interval to dilate the eyes so that everybody is on the same page during the neurological checks. Lastly, in very unfortunate cases, postmortem examination is going to be recommended for children who are going to die from unexplained causes or abusive injury. To summarize, retinal hemorrhages are a
0: common finding in fatal cases of abusive head trauma and are seen in almost 85% of the cases, with a spectrum of disease such as extensive hemorrhages leading to retinal tears, detachment, and vitriol hemorrhage. While retinal hemorrhages are not specific to abusive head trauma, they can be easily distinguished based on history, imaging, and clinical evaluation. Conditions such as birth trauma can cause retinal hemorrhages. The presence of these hemorrhages can be correlated with the mode of delivery, with vacuum extractions having higher correlation compared to normal, spontaneous vaginal deliveries and C-sections. It is important to note that retinal hemorrhages should not be attributed to birth trauma after six weeks of age. Other differential for retinal hemorrhages in infants to keep in mind include leukemia, meningitis, vasculitis, and sometimes even severe hypertension. However, by and large, keep NAT on the top of your differential when you see retinal hemorrhages. So Rahul, how would you outline your general management framework if the history, physical examination, and diagnostic investigation suggests a diagnosis of abusive head trauma?
1: Absolutely Pradeep and I think that this is very patient specific but let me give a general framework you know in managing a child with non-accidental trauma the first step is to prioritize acute medical and surgical management of the child's condition which includes following the same principles used for traumatic brain injury and polytrauma this involves early consultation with neurosurgery and trauma teams implementing cerebroprotective measures for intracranial pressure management and prevention of secondary brain injury. And we have a whole episode highlighting cerebral protection in the setting of trauma. So feel free to check those out. Other things that we want to make sure for best practices is to have lung protective ventilation strategies. Remember, these kids can end up unfortunately having uh, pulmonary contusions that can progress to ARDS. You want to provide adequate analgo sedation Making sure you're paying attention to your fluid balance and correcting any necessary laboratory abnormalities. And, you know, in the setting of our particular case with abusive head trauma, making sure you're trending sodiums and kind of keeping it on the higher side is going to be beneficial. You know, the taxi guidelines are really great and uh, they can be followed for any recommendations for blood and platelet transfusion. We've also discussed transfusion medicine in the PICU in prior episodes.
0: Rahul, let's close this episode with some key summary uh, take-home points.
1: This uh, was really fun, Pradeep. And, you know, our case today highlighted the importance of maintaining a high index of suspicion for non accidental trauma in infants and in young children. You know, the infant in our case had clinical findings inconsistent with the history provided by the caregiver, leading to a diagnosis of abusive head trauma. Now, abusive abdominal trauma should be considered in cases of non-accidental trauma with a high mortality rate and common injuries to the liver, kidney, spleen, and intestines. A team approach is crucial in the management of NAT in the PICU involving specialists from trauma, neurosurge, child advocacy, radiology, and social services. Early recognition and intervention are essential in improving outcomes for these vulnerable patients.
0: This concludes our episode on child abuse. We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc On Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.